Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. So, if you have a Bible, open up to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, we'll make sure you get one. And uh, once you're there, if you would stand with me. This is a, such an incredible, incredible section of Scripture that we're about to read, man. It, and it is, uh, it's amazing. And contextually, it's all falling under the umbrella of humility, what humility looks like. And Paul describes what humility looks like by using the perfect example, Jesus. And so here we go. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read all the way through verse 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any uh, participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and what an incredible, incredible set of scriptures that we have before us describing the humility of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you to just speak into our lives this morning. Help us, Lord, to see how we might have this mind in us that was in Christ Jesus also. Lord, you've given it to us. Would you help us to apply it, to walk in it? Would you reveal, Lord, to us the areas where we need to apply this truth? And would you speak into our lives, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The title of my message this morning is Having a Humble Mind, Having a Humble Mind. In verses 5 through 11, we find an illustration of what true humility looks like through the life of Jesus Christ. Again, humility is this, it is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You follow that? So it's not thinking less of yourself, oh, poor me, look at me, I'm, I'm nobody, all that. No, it's thinking of yourself less. Like, I don't, I don't even cross my mind, right? Although I do. But, but we shouldn't cross our minds too much. You know, that's the point. That is what humility looks like. You're not concerned about yourself. You're concerned about others. Jesus is the greatest display, the perfect display of humility. You might recall, uh, as we went through last week, verses 1 through 4. And Paul was instructing this church in Philippi, to become unified because there was an issue in the body there. There was some schism that had happened between two ladies specifically um, that, that Paul calls out in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I entreat you, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat 
Syntyche to agree in the Lord. We don't know what happened there. We don't know why there was a division. We, we don't know if there were more divisions than that. What we know is that there was a division. And Paul is asking these two ladies who were probably prominent women in this body that had created some sort of schism in the body, that they would agree in the Lord, that they would stop looking at their own interests. They wouldn't let their own mindset get in the way of what the Bible says. And again, if you were here last week, the, the, the really our entire sort of motto in life as Christians should be this. No matter what it is that we're encountering, we should always ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? And how do I apply it to my life? If we would do that, we would be unified because it's not about what we think. It's not about how we feel. It's about what the Bible says, what the scriptures say. How many of you really care about what the Bible says? That if you live your life that way, it'll never steer, steer you wrong. Uh, you know, where we get into trouble is when we start living our lives according to how we think or how we feel. And uh, so God... God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. And so we want to make sure that we let the scripture lead us in all that we do. Paul tells this church, hey, get unified. Christ has given you unity. You can have the same love, the same mind. You can be in the same body, going the same direction, because Christ had died to give you that. He gives a principle as he moves into, really, it was the, the first portion of the, the text was really speaking about um, the means of unity, and it's Christ. We're, we're unified in Christ. He's the one that brings us all together. As we move into verses four through, uh, 3 through 4, Paul then begins to speak about the means of unity, how we obtain it and how we maintain unity in the body. And he gives us the principle of everything that he's speaking about in verses 1 through 11. And he tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is telling this body, if you want to be unified, here's, here's the means of it. This is the way that you, this is the principle. You have to die to yourself and live for other people. He's saying if you, you know, you have to let pride fall and allow humility to rise in you if you want to be unified as a body. You're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about how can I bless other people? And if the body of Christ would live this way, the world would look, look differently. Why does the church look the way it looks? Is because people are not applying uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 4. That's why. You know, if you want to boil it down to one thing, like what, what's going on in the church, and we can talk about doctrine, and we can talk about all this stuff, the reality is people don't want to die to themselves. They want people to serve them rather than to serve. And really, the entire principle of verses 3 through 4 is you go serve others. You go, you know, wash somebody else's feet. You go do something for somebody else, even if it costs you, even unto death, as we'll see. You make others the priority of your life, not you. Now, that is an upside-down kind of mindset as it relates to our world and the way that we think. That's not natural. That's supernatural. In order to do this, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no way that you'll be able to do that if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, however, you can reject that and live for yourself. You can do that. God will let you do that. It's not going to stop you from going from heaven, but you will not be able to, uh, you know, live to the potential that you have 
You'll never ever fulfill the, the, the specific thing that God created you to do to the, to the extent that you can if you will apply Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. If you will do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of conceit, puffing yourself up, making yourself look better than you really are, it's a false picture. But if you will consider the interests of others more than yourself, listen, you will fulfill the will of God in your life. It will require you to die to self. The Christian life can only be lived by you dying to yourself and allowing Christ to live through you. It's the only way. If you want to live that way, then do these things. That's what Paul says. Now, here's what happens. We have uh, the, 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 the mode. We have the means. Now we have uh, what Paul goes into is, is the mindset of humility. The mode, the means, the mindset of humility. What does humility look like? Well, Paul then moves into verses 5 through 11, and he gives us the perfect example. He said, let, let me just show you what humility looks like. Let me look at Jesus. Let's look at Jesus Christ and, and look what he did, that he came down, all the way down, that he, would, that he would go back up for you and me. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for you. He did it for me. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of what it looks like to live for others. He's the perfect example of what it looks like to, um, you know, live out humility in an unselfish way. It's just an incredible way that Jesus did that. Jesus didn't look to his own interests, did he? He looked to the interests of you and I. Down the corridor of time he was looking from the foundation of the world, he was looking at you. He was thinking of you. It says that's why it says that he was slain from the foundation of the world. He gave himself up before you even existed. And he loves you that much. And he, he is that humble. And we're going to see uh, what that hum humility looks like. We're going to see what it means to have a humble mind. First, Paul begins by giving us an exhortation to have a humble mind. Then he gives us the example of what a humble mind looks like. And finally, in verses 9 through 11, he gives us uh, the, the result of a humble mind, which is exaltation. We begin with an exhortation to uh, have a humble mind in verse 5, where Paul says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, how many of you guys have ever known, ever noticed that thinking something and doing something are two different things? You know that to be true, right? Like you can think about something all day long. That doesn't mean you're doing it, right? I mean, like, like the, it's just a simple example. Getting in shape. You know, when, when you try and get in shape, you think about it, and you're like, man. You know, here, here's what happens to me anyway. I, I'm watching a Rocky movie or something. Eye of the Tiger comes on, and I'm like, dun, 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 dun. And I'm like, I'm starting to get, like, excited and everything. Next thing you know, I'm chugging down eggs out of my, out of my uh, refrigerator, and I'm ready to go. I think, hey, man, I'm ready. I'm ready to get in shape. The problem is I'm responding emotionally. It's an emotional response. What I must do if I am going to actually fulfill that desire in my life is I have to change my mindset. It has to be a mindset because it's not a, 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 just a 60-minute thing. It's not just a quick trip to the gym and the next thing you know, I'm in shape. No, it's going to take time. And it's going to be something that I have to work out 
every day. It's something that I have to be conscious of. It's something that I have to, and not only exercise, but the way I eat, how much I sleep, all of this stuff, how much water I'm drinking. All of a sudden, I have to build a mindset in order to accomplish what it is that I desire to accomplish. The Christian life is no different. Many of us wake up every morning and we just leave it to chance that we're going to live for Christ. Like we're not really focused. We don't have a mindset of, hey, I want to have the mind of Christ. And we're not on our knees saying, God, I want to live for you this morning. This is, a, this is a marathon. And you might have done that two years or four years or six years ago, and you're, and you're living off that prayer. <laughs> John Bon Jovi. But listen, honestly, if you're going to be successful on a daily basis, you've got to make it your mindset. It's got to be something that you live breathe, eat. It's got to be something that you're focused on all the time. It has to be a mindset. And if it isn't, you're never ever going to be able to do it. Because listen, emotions don't have the capacity to take you where you need to go physically. You know that? You can respond emotionally to something, but it will never ever get you to achieve that level. It might be a catalyst. I'm not saying that emotion is totally out because God uses emotion, but we don't walk by emotion. We, it, he may just Use it as a catalyst, but then it's got to become a mindset if you want to have success in your life, if you want to walk successfully in the Christian uh, life, if you want to have a mind like Christ, you have to allow your emotions to become your mindset. Many people have responded to the gospel in this particular way, emotionally. And it's not a mindset. But the Bible says in order to truly obtain salvation... It has to be a mindset. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, listen, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Here's, here's what happens at salvation. There is an emotional moment where all of a sudden you feel conviction. You, you feel the weight of sin, right? And you're like, oh, man, i I, I got to do something about this. I need to get rid of this because that feeling isn't fun. The Lord is revealing himself. He's saying, I'm holy, and you are not. And this is the weight of your sin. The, the weight of sin is death. And all of a sudden, you feel that condemnation on yourself, and you say, man, I need to do something about it. The problem is most people just take it to that level, and they say, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Oh, I just need to say this prayer. I say this prayer. But, but notice, it says that you must not only confess him with your mouth, but you have to believe in your heart. And in fact, Paul goes on to define what that looks like. He says, actually, you believe in your heart. And because you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. Many people confess Christ with their mouth without believing in him in their heart. It's an emotional response to a condemnation, which is the point that's the point of the law, to condemn, to, to reveal sin, right? But if we want to genuinely become saved people, we have to believe in our heart. Now, this concept of the heart, really, in, in biblical terms, is not the organ that you have in the middle of your chest. Which, by the way, Della is doing fantastic. I saw her yesterday. Praise God, her heart is doing awesome. And... Uh, she, she's actually getting out today, they believe. So praise the Lord, man. And she is progressing. I mean, it's like it, w it went very, very well. So thank you for the prayers. Um, but, but, but the point of when, when you read the word heart in the Bible, it's not speaking about your physical heart. 
is speaking about the center of your, your mind, your emotions, and your will. It really, I mean, in, in Hebrew terms, it's your mind. It's really speaking about your mind, the center of everything, where, you, where everything comes from, right? That's why the Bible says, be diligent with your heart, for out of it spring the issues of life. Now, again, I can't help but to think that that scripture, speaking about, you know, the heart, everything springing out of the heart, it really is speaking about a mindset, isn't it? Isn't it speaking about the what, how you think about things, how you see things, and how you live your life? It is. And, and, and if, if you go through life just responding emotionally to things, you'll never really be, you'll never ever achieve anything because emotions are fleeting. One day I feel like doing it, one day I don't. If you're following Christ, Jesus said this, you have to deny yourself. Self-denial, number one. Take up your cross and follow me. Now that is a commitment, folks. That is not an emotional response. That is a lifelong commitment to say, I will follow you, Jesus, no matter what it costs me. Because here's the thing is it's not about what it costs. It's about a decision that you've made to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, right? And now my mindset has to be that. I've decided to follow Jesus. Therefore, these things that are in my life, I have to get rid of because I've decided to follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, you're building a mindset that is centered on Scripture and what the Bible says about what your life should look like. And that's what genuine salvation looks like. It's a mindset. And, and humility is no different, folks. If you want to be humble, if you want to live out a humble life, if you want to have the mind that Christ has, you have to have the mindset Christ had. And, and, and so, you know, Paul describes for us that mindset. But I want you to understand this first. This exhortation is not an exhortation for acquisition. It is an exhortation for application. Not, you don't have to acquire it. You have it. You just have to live it. You know, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And he was specifically speaking about unity in the Corinthian church and how they were disunified and they were suing each other. And he said, listen, you're going to judge you're going to judge angels one day. Don't you think that you could probably judge your own problems rather than run into the world and suing each other? And, and he says, you have the mind of Christ. This is not something that Paul is exhorting you to run out and get. You have it already. He's exhorting you to apply the truth, which is found here, that, that you can do it because you already have the mind of Christ. How do we know if we're walking in it then? What is the litmus test for me to be able to know if I am walking in the mind of Christ? Very simple. And I said it last week. If you're choosing preference over people, you're not walking in the mind of Christ. If you're choosing your preferences over people, you're not walking with the, the same mind that Christ walked because he didn't choose his preferences over people. It's real simple. All you have to do is look at how you engage with people, what, how people work in your life. If you're more concerned about you than you are them, then you don't have the mind of Christ. You might, or you're not walking it, I should say. You might be a Christian. You might be redeemed and you might be going to heaven, but here's the reality. You're not living that newness of life that the Bible says that you have. 
The newness of life includes the mind of Christ, which is given to you already. And the best gauge in order to, to, to know if you're walking in that is how you relate to people. Are people important to you? Or are people a bother? If people are a bother to you, then listen, Jesus might need to do some work in your heart <laughs> because he loved people, man. And in fact, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Of course, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Of course, that's the number one. But he said also, love others as you love yourself. And in old, you love yourself. So, oh, should you love others? Real quick litmus test, how do I relate to other people? Am I really living, walking out this mindset of Christ? It's a selfless mindset. Paul goes on to illustrate that for us. Draw your attention to verse 6 where we find the example of the humble mind there. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, this is some of the most profound truths we find in the Bible about Jesus and what he has done for us. Verses 6 through 8, I divide it up into two sections. Firstly, who Jesus is, and secondly, what he's done. Now, you, you can't really appreciate what Jesus has done until you understand who he is. Right? You, you can't really fully grasp what he's done until you fully grasp who he is. Notice the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, declares to us the identity of Jesus right here. He is God. He is God. Notice what Paul says. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What I think is important to note is that Jesus, listen, he didn't upgrade his situation to service. He downgraded he downgraded. He was, he was, and he is, and he always will be God. And we'll get into that in a second. But he became a man. And we'll see not just a man, but he became a worm for you and I. Jesus Christ, God, became a man to become a lamb, to become a worm for you and I. You want to talk about humility. The word though there. In the Greek, it could be translated being or existed. It's a present active participle that denotes the continuation of a previous state or existence. What does that mean? What, what it means is that though Jesus Christ, he existed, has always existed, will always exist, what? In the form of God. He is God. That's why he existed in that form. And that form never changes. Now, this isn't some... It, new teaching, this is something that the early church believed wholeheartedly. Something that they, they, they believed with, without question. What, what Paul is saying here is stressing the essence of Jesus' nature. That, that it is absolutely unalterable, inalienable, unchangeable. That he was and he is and he always will be the form of God. William Barclay comments on this verb, he says that, uh, refers to this, that, that part of a person which is, that part of a person which in any circumstance remains the same. It does not change. 
although Jesus came down, he still remained the exact same as he was. He is God. He never changed. He is immutable. That means he is unchanging. He, he could never ever not be God because he is God and God is immutable. He doesn't change. It's something that Paul is referring to as something to be grasped. It's a, it's a concept that should blow your mind. That God became a man to become a lamb to become a worm. What Paul's saying here is that Jesus did, does, and always will exist in the form of God. That word form, you can circle it. It means the nature or character of something with emphasis upon Listen, the internal and external form. Jesus is fully God inside and out, and he always has been. Now, again, I said the early church didn't struggle with this. And in fact, there was a teaching that surfaced in the early church that was the direct opposite of this, of the issue that we have today. In fact, many people believed in the early church that there's no way, they believed fully that Jesus was God, they just had a problem that he was a man. So it's the direct opposite of what we're dealing with today. There are so many people in the world that believe Jesus is a man, but he's not God. And if you look back in the, old, uh, in, in the early church, they weren't struggling with that. They were struggling with the opposite. How could God become a man? We're struggling. How can, how can man be God? Listen. My Bible says great is the mysteries of godliness. It says that all things are possible through God, right? All things are possible through him. And so there's going to be things that I don't understand. There's going to be mysteries in the Bible that I can't comprehend, but that does not make them untrue. Listen, there are conversations that you have with people all the time, and you, you don't fully grasp what they're saying, but you receive it, right? Right? Like, oh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, I, I believe it. But, but there are also those conversations that you have with people where you go, man, I'd have to see that to believe it, you know. So in that moment, by the way, you're calling that person a liar because you don't believe what they're saying. And if you reject what Paul is saying here about Jesus, that he is in, always has been, always will be in the form of God, that he is the essence, the nature, the very character. He's cut from the same cloth, Hebrews chapter 1 says. He is the exact imprint of God, then it's not a problem with the truth. It's a problem with your heart. It's a problem with you overcoming this idea that you can't comprehend something. And I, I can't grasp this totally. I don't understand it. But the more I start study the scriptures, I see it over and over and over and over again that Jesus Christ is fully God. And that should blow your minds for what he's done. should blow your minds. Let's consider some other scriptures that declare the same truth. John 1, 1 through 3. This is probably the most famous. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word here is Jesus. You can look down to verse 14. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is speaking about Jesus Christ. However, the rub becomes when it says the Word was God. The word was God. Many will say, no, uh-uh, that's not a correct translation. The correct translation is the word became a God. Wrong. That's an incorrect translation. Here's the thing, uh, is that there are those Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Muslims, many other 
religious organizations that will not believe in the deity of Christ. Or, you know, the Mormons will call Jesus a God, but he'll, they'll also call you a God. So you can become a God. You can rule your own world, you know, as it relates to that. But, but the reality is, is that this says that Jesus is the God. He's not a God. He is the God. Listen to what it says in the Greek, and it's a little bit weird how the, the language goes, but it reads like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word, and God was the Word. So when, next time you have a knock on the door, the first thing you go to is John 1.1, 1, 1, and you say, here's the thing. I don't want to draw this conversation out. You and I believe in a different Jesus. Jesus Christ, according to the Scriptures, is God, and your New World Translation says that he is a God, that's a different Jesus. And the Bible reminds me not to fall into following a different gospel because if I have a different Jesus, I have a different gospel, right? And so we have to be careful about that. And you can take them, you can tell them that in the original language, it doesn't say, and the word was a God. It says God was the word. That's the literal translation of the Greek. God was the word. And here's the thing. If, if that's a struggle for you and you don't, you know, you don't invest to study that, you're never going to really feel comfortable with that. But the more you invest in it, as I have, uh, you're going to feel, you're going to see it all through Scripture. This is the, the, uh, a very clear uh, picture that Jesus is God. And not only that, but also look, and it tells us that he's creator of all things. Now, who created the world according to Genesis 1? God did, right? Yeah, God created the world. Well, check this out. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. Uh, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is creator. Uh, it, it goes on here. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now you parallel that with Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which says this. Then God said, listen, let us make man in our image. It's plural in the Hebrew. It's plural, right? It, going on to verse 27. So God created man, listen, singular, in his image, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is interesting because verse 26 is plural, but when it comes to creation, the concept of creation is plural. That means the Godhead is fully united together. They all are in, in agreement. This is what the world will look like. Then the creator, Jesus Christ, creates the world, creates man and woman and everything that existed. Now, here's the thing, is that God created the world. It says God did it. It's not a contradiction in John 1, 1 to say God is the word. It's a contradiction to say God is a, or the word is a God. That's the contradiction. Jesus is creator of all things. He, he, he is the one that created, and, and, you know, it's very clear in the scriptures, but, but 
if you don't want to believe that, if people don't want to believe that, it doesn't matter what truth they're faced with. If I want to tell you that, you know, th this car is blue all day long and you don't want to believe that, then you're not going to. So we have to be honest with the scriptures, no matter how we feel about it, right? Because we don't care about how we feel about it. We care about what it says. And at the end of the day, what it says is Jesus is God. So whatever intellectual hurdles I have to get over in order to receive that, I just need to get over them. It doesn't mean I fully comprehend it. It just means, like, that's what it says. That's what I believe, period. Do I believe a donkey talk to Balaam? Yes, I do. <laughs> I don't comprehend that, but I believe it because the Scripture says so. If you don't live your life in the sense of looking to Scripture and believing what it says literally, then I don't know what you're, how you're living because it's all up to you. But if you, if you bear down on the, on the Scripture and let, them, let it be honest with you, you be honest with it and let it say what it says, listen, it will take you on a different trajectory in life. It, you know, because the Scripture gives life. Jesus gives life, and the Scripture speaks about Jesus. And the more we understand that, the more we will realize that in our lives. We believe Jesus is God not because it makes sense, because, but because that's what the Scripture says. Jesus was, is, and always will be God. Now, look at this. He says, he's, he, he, here's the humble mind of Christ. He's God, but he didn't account equality with God, a thing to be grasped. What Paul is saying is that, you know, in the downward step to become like us, he still maintained his full deity. He was still God. He never ceased not being God. He was in the form of God. That means he always will be, he was and he is, and he always will be God no matter what. And yet, in spite of that, he did not count equality with God. In other words, what Jesus did was he voluntarily, key word, voluntarily laid down his rights as God. He laid down his rights for you and I. Let me illustrate that for a second because I think this is a huge issue in our, in our culture. And this is an easy illustration. If you're a United States citizen, you have rights. You have all kinds of rights. You have the right to remain silent. Hopefully you've never heard that before. You have the right to bear arms. You have the right to do a lot of different things. Now imagine that in the same way what Jesus did, you voluntarily lay down your rights and you say, it's not about me. It's about other people. I care more about what other people think than I care about what we think. But what happens is pride rears up and says, no, my rights. It's about my rights. And you start to put your foot down. And what is that? It's pride. And I'm not saying we don't fight for rights. That, that's, not even the, that's not the context of this conversation. The context is trying to illustrate what Jesus did in the same way that you have these inherent rights because of who you are. You are a United States citizen. You have these inherent rights. But then you voluntarily lay down those inherent rights and you say, it's not about me. That's what Jesus did to a way greater extent. He being God said, I will, I will relinquish my rights as God and I will walk in this world as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the will of God, to do the will of my Father. That's what he did. He voluntarily gave that up. Jesus was and is and always will be God, but he did not exercise his rights while he was incarnate. He never used his deity to his own advantage, hashtag having a humble mind. 
He never used his deity for his own rights. Oh, I think that I want to have some bread. He did not. He humbled himself and he became obedient to the Father, whatever the Father's will, even to the point of death as we see. It's a thing to be grasped. It's something that should blow our minds. Who does that? Jesus does. And if you have the mind of Christ, you do that. You do that. Why would Jesus do that? Because of the cost of salvation, folks. Because of the cost of salvation. You, you see, sal the, the world was lost through the sin of one man, but the world was also won through the righteousness of one man. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. It's the way justice works, folks. The world was lost by the sin of Adam. The world was won by the righteousness of Christ. The blood of righteousness is enough to redeem the entire world through one sacrifice. That should blow your mind. Because God came down. He was no mere man. This was God in the flesh that relinquished his rights as God and he said, I will live a righteous life empowered by the same Holy Spirit that is in you and I and I will live that life perfectly and I will die and I will give my blood up for others. Not because he needed to do it but because he did it for you and I. Isaiah declares this in Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors that's what Jesus has done for you by his wounds we are healed it's his blood his blood alone his righteousness and yet how did that come to be because Jesus did not count himself equality with God, something to be grasped. And yet we're holding on to our rights like it's our last thing. You know, our entitlement to be who we are. I'm entitled. I'm free. I can do whatever. Jesus didn't live like that. Jesus said, I'm entitled to nothing but the Father's will. I will do whatever he asks me to do no matter what it is, no matter where it takes me. Listen, do you have the mind of Christ? Do you have that mind? Are you willing to do whatever he tells you to do? Are you willing to go wherever he tells you to go? That's the mind of Christ. And I would say that the church needs to maybe take this seriously. What is the mind of Christ? Who am I living for? What am I doing here? What is my life about? Am I giving myself up like Jesus did? The mind of Christ is like that. And it doesn't matter what that calling is in your life. The question is, is what is the mode? What, am I submitted to the Holy Spirit, to the will of God? What does he want me to do with my life? I'll tell you what, it will involve serving. It will involve serving people. It will not involve you being served. I promise you that. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life a ransom for many. 
So how does he practically do this? How does Jesus go from making this a thought to reality? So he comes, right? And that's not enough. It's not enough that he just showed up. Like he came down, but he's got to go all the way down. It says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And in spite of who Jesus is, look at what he's done. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. There's a lot of discussions amongst theologians about what this actually means. What did he empty himself of? Let me tell you what he did not empty himself of, his deity. Paul just got done saying that he's in the form of God. He always has been, always will be God, inside and out. He has always been that way. Even in his incarnation, he was still God. That's why Isaiah said he will be called what? Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Because he's God. He never ceased being God. But he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? There's many different ideas about that. Some believe that he emptied himself of his glory. Some believe that he emptied himself of his privilege. Some believe that he emptied himself of his power. Some believe that he emptied himself of his attributes. I believe that he emptied himself of all of those things. I believe that he literally laid down his, his rights as God and said, you know what? My glory my rights, my power, my authority, I give it all to you. And I will submit to whatever it is that you desire for me to do. That's what he did. He gave all for you and I. He came down. He emptied himself. Listen, there, there, there's, it's not really so much important, I don't think about exactly what he emptied himself of, the fact that he emptied himself. Right? Here's what we do as people. We try and fill ourselves. We're constantly trying to fill ourselves, fill ourselves. I've got I to gotta fill this void in my life. I feel this need for something, and I don't know what it is, so I'm just going to keep shoveling stuff in. I'm filling, I'm filling, I'm filling, I'm filling. But you're emptier and emptier and emptier and emptier. What, what the Bible says in the principle here that Jesus is laying out is that really you want to join your life, then you need to empty yourself, not fill yourself. You don't need to fill yourself more. You need to empty yourself more. We talked about it last week, and you know even psychology agrees with this, the idea that you know, uh, people are happier when they're serving others. And they're not happier when they're selfish and continuing to fill themselves with stuff. They're happier when they serve other people. And this is exactly true. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Look what, look, look what it says there. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of, uh, of the throne of God. Jesus himself illustrates that point, that if you want joy in your life, you empty yourself, even to the point of death. You serve people, even if it costs you your life. That's how you get real joy. That's how you get true biblical joy in your life, is you, you, you die to yourself. The more you serve yourself, the less, the less joyful you will be. Every circumstance that will come into your life, you'll, you'll be thinking about you rather than thinking about God and what his will is and, and you know, what, how he can use this in your life. You will become the proverbial child that is saying, poor me, poor me. Look what I'm encountering. I don't see Jesus as he's hanging on the cross saying, poor me, poor me. No, what he says is, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. His focus is not on himself. His focus is on other people. That's where his joy is. It was for the joy that was set before him. You are his joy. As he's hanging on the cross, he's thinking of all of all of eternity, every single person that would 
come to know him, and he says, you're my joy. You're my joy that you would receive me. You would believe upon uh, me for salvation. And that's why he died. He emptied himself in that way. Um, how do we do this? How do we, how do we empty ourselves this way? By becoming a slave, of course. By becoming a slave. That's what it says here. Notice how Jesus emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. Being in the likeness of men. Jesus became a slave for you. That word servant is, is a very politically correct translation of what this word really means. It means slave. It means slave. Subservient to someone else. That's what it means. You're not a servant that, you know, in our culture is really, you know, on equal footing with everybody. You're a slave. You're a subservient to somebody else. You are a slave to, to God, to Christ, if you're his. You're a slave to him. If you are not his, you're a slave to the devil. You are a slave, period. You are subservient. You can't stop the things that are going on in your life because they're bigger than you. You are subservient. You are a slave to these things. Jesus said, you want to empty yourself? You have to become a slave. He said it like this in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, when he's talking to his disciples about how great they are. You know, he says this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles rule it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you a slave, Christian, or are you still the master? Are you a slave or are you still the master? How do you know you're a slave? Anybody know the answer to that question? When you're treated like one. You know you're a slave when you're treated like one. What does one look like? John Corson does a good job of it. He says slaves are not noticed. Slaves are not thanked. Slaves are not invited to dinner. No one compliments them. No one applauds them. They're expected to do their work and not be seen. And that's the mind that is to be in me. How profound. That Jesus would empty himself and as if that wasn't enough. That he would become subservient. That would he, be, he would become a slave. In fact, he would, another translation says, he would make himself of no reputation. In fact, Isaiah 53 says that he was, he, no one, he was uncomely man. No one considered Jesus to be who he said he was just by the way of his appearance. He became a slave so that we could become a slave. The downgrade continues, folks. He becomes a worm. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John the Baptist, when Jesus surfaced, he declared Jesus as the Lamb of God. And I just, I don't know, this concept of John the Baptist you know, when he first sees Jesus, um, if you read the first uh, few chapters of the book of John, you see John the Baptist responding to, to seeing Jesus, and he's like, behold, the Lamb of God, you know, and, and it's like every time he sees Jesus for the next few days, it's like, behold, the Lamb of God, he's like, he's blowing, like my mind is blowing, the, the Lamb of God is here. Listen, he became a lamb in the sense of unblemished perfection that was the lamb portion 
his life would be lived out in such a way that he would be unblemished, that he would be acceptable as a sacrifice. But then he became a worm. And David pins this so prophetic word to us in the psalm known to us as Psalm 22. It's, it's called the suffering servant psalm. And in verse 6, David said this about Jesus. He said, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. If you don't know this story, the, the, the Hebrew word for worm here is tola. And it's referring to a very specific kind of worm. It's called the crimson worm or it's called the scarlet worm. And what this worm would do when it wanted to, at the end of its life, it would reproduce itself, right? So, um, and, and, and it would climb up a tree. It would attach itself to a specific kind of tree. I can't remember what it is, a cypress or something. Attach itself to this tree, and it would, as it's giving birth, explode. And then all of the babies would eat, the, eat away the body of, this, of, this, of the mother. And what would be left is a scarlet stain. They used to take these worms and extract dye from them because they had this really crimson, scarlety uh, color. Their, their, their blood was that color. But that stain would be left on the tree for approximately three days. And then on the third day, that tree, that, that stain would turn white. It would flake off. And that's what Jesus did for you. He became a worm for you. The crimson worm, that was Jesus Christ. It says that he became a man to become a lamb, to become a worm, that he would die the death of the cross. This is the humble mind of Christ, that he would come all the way down to the point of death. No greater sign of humility than this, to be willing to, to become, listen, obedient to death, even death on a cross. The cross was, was invented by Satan through the Persians in 300 B.C., it was perfected by the Romans, and it was meant to be a, an excruciating way to die. It was meant to be a, a means of suffering, uh, to, you know, the, the most unbearable pain until you suffocated to death. They would take you. It was public humiliation. They would strip you naked. The pictures of, what, of crucifixion are not accurate. They, they, they strip you naked. You're, 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 then they pin you to uh, the patillium, which is the cross beam, and then they slot you up onto a beam, a, an upright beam. As they do that, your joints come out of whack. And they position you in such a way as they have pinned your arms or your, your wrists and your, your legs to the, to the post. Then what they would do is um, you they would position you so that you would have to pull yourself up to get a breath because you're collapsed on your diaphragm. You can't breathe. So every time you want to breathe, you have to pull yourself up. <gasps> And then you go back and collapse. So you're suffocating yourself. And ev eventually you just become so exhausted from the pain, the, 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 uh, you know, just the pulling yourself up and all of that, um, that you, you die. You suffocate. That's the, that's the kind of the Jesus died. It was meant for the most vile criminals. And yet Jesus Christ was willing to pay that price for you. What an amazing thing he's done for us. What, what I think is awesome and I think the language is appropriate, is that he became obedient to death. It was on his terms. You realize that when Jesus went to the cross and he died for you, it wasn't because his life was taken from him. It was because he gave up his life for you. There's a big difference. There's a huge difference. Martyrism is your life is taken from you. 
Jesus Christ gave his life for you. And he even said that in John chapter 10, verse 18. He said, no one takes, takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Again, not because he was God, but because he was fully submissive to the Father, and the Father gave him that authority to lay down his life and take his life back up. Full submission to the Father. Subservient, slave. And yet, I, I love this language that he gave up the ghost. It was his terms. In that moment, six, six hours or so on the cross, he says, this is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died right then. He decided. I love that about the Lord. That's just like, man, the man, Jesus Christ. That's what Pilate called him, the man. He is the man. And he died for you. And he willingly did it. Full obedience. What does a humble mind look like? And it looks like that. It looks like that. Crucifixion. That's what a humble mind looks like. No matter what the cost is to the will of God, I will do it. Because I'm humble. No matter what it costs me to serve other people, I will do it. Because that's what humility does. All right. We're, we're not going to get into the exaltation uh, We'll get into that next week. But here's the point. Paul wants us to understand what the, the, the exhortation that he's given, that we should have this mind in us, which was in Christ Jesus also, and the example of what humility looks like in our lives. Right? It, it looks probably a lot different than we're living it, right? It might look a little bit different, but here's the thing is it doesn't have to. Because what God wants to do, he said, you already have this mind. All you have to do is walk in it. So it's a, it's a decision that you have to make. What is God calling me to do? He's calling me to be humble. He's calling me to do nothing with selfish ambition or conceit, but through humility to look to other people's interests and not to my own. To consider what, what, God, what is God asking you to do today? How is he asking you to serve what is he asking you to get involved in that you haven't been involved in? What, are, what, what is his will in your life, and are you on task, or are you not? There's many, many things that God has asked us to do, but I think we fail in the most basic things, guys. And the most basic things are, you know, sharing the gospel. That's other-centered. That's not about me. It's about them. And why do, why do I not do it? Because I'm proud. I'm afraid of what people are going to say or how they're going to reject me. Doesn't matter the cost. Be humble. Care about them more than you care about yourself. Because here's the thing is somebody is going to spend eternity in hell because they would not receive the gospel. That doesn't mean that, you know, they've never been shared the gospel because God will give everybody an opportunity, I believe. I believe that's scriptural. But here's the thing is he wants to use you. He wants you to go into the world. He wants you to make disciples. And he's commissioned you to do that. Very simple. Humble yourself and do it. Listen, if you're not serving others, there's many, many things that you could be doing. Tons of stuff you can do, be doing. We're, we're a family here. You can serve here. You should be serving here. You should be doing something. There should be some, there's all kinds of stuff that you can do. We need somebody to serve in the media. We need, somebody to, um, we need people to serve in greeting. You can serve somewhere. We need children's ministry people only if you're called to that. You've got to be called the children's ministry. You better love, love children or you're not allowed. Okay, that's the, that's the caveat. But listen, you can do something. And you should do something. Because Jesus Christ, 
he, he became the example for you. And if you have truly denied yourself, taken up your cross, and you're following him, then you're going to be doing these things. And if you're not, start today. Listen, the call is very simple. Be humble. Don't allow pride to stop you from being who God's calling you to be. Die to yourself. And a very simple way to do that is, how am I relating to people? Amen? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you for just the emphasis that you have given us this morning on what we as your body are called to do. We're called to be like Jesus, to have the mind of Christ. And we ask you this morning, Lord, that if, if in some way, shape, or form we are failing from that, Lord, that you would help us to right now, just in the privacy of our own hearts, Lord, we would confess that to you, Lord, I'm confessing this thing to you that I haven't been obedient to. I recognize my need to do that. And I want to I surrender myself to you right now. And I want you to be the Lord of this situation or my life or whatever it is, Lord. Would you come by your spirit, Lord, and would you empower us, Lord, to live out the mind of Christ, to walk according to the mind of Christ. We can't do it on our own, Lord. Again, it would be emotion for us to say, okay, I'm doing it now. But we need the mindset. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us to develop this, this way of thinking that we don't consider our own interests, that we don't uh, do things out of selfish ambition or conceit. We don't allow pride, an ounce of room in our life, Lord, but we operate in humility. So we ask you to come by your Spirit, Lord, Direct our steps. Help us, Lord. Help us to, to live out according to the mind of Christ. And Father, I want to, for anyone who's listening on the radio, watching live or here this morning that doesn't have a relationship with you, it starts there. It starts with a right relationship with you. It starts with us confessing you as Lord and believing in our hearts that you raised from the dead. And so we want to just give an opportunity this morning for anyone that isn't in right relationship with you, that maybe has responded emotionally, but wants to make a decision today to decide to follow Jesus, that they would pray a prayer in all sincerity of heart, committing themselves to you by saying, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I recognize my need for you this morning. I want to be cleansed of my sin. I want to be made right. Will you come into my heart? Will you become my Lord and Savior. I recognize that you paid the price for me. You died and you rose again from the dead for me. You humbled yourself and now I humble myself. And I give you this life that you created back for your purposes in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you commitment yields genuine salvation in the heart of the person who has prayed that. And I thank you, God, for that. And I, and I just pray, Lord, over every person here today that whatever it is that you desire to do in our lives, that we, we surrender to it. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.